Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the first official episode of the Voices of Two Blocks podcast. My name is Hermela. And my name is Jeanette. Today, we welcome you to episode one of season three. We are joined here today by an amazing guest, Marlise Reeves, a PhD candidate at MIT. Welcome, Marlise. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank awesome. you. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast. You're kicking off the season, so we're super excited. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Of course. So I think we'll just jump right in. We would love for you to provide us with a little intro. So we met you back at the MIT slash Cambridge Science Festival open house that we had back in September. So if you want to give us a brief introduction to our audience um, and describe what you do and your journey of becoming who you are today. Sure. Um, so I'm Marlise. I was born in L.A. Um, and I am a self-proclaimed science fiction nerd. I've loved sci-fi since I was a kid. And I think that's really got me what got me interested in STEM. I also grew up a few blocks away from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So I like was surrounded by space and space exploration. And so I really thought I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. That's what I wanted to do. I was lucky enough to get into MIT for undergrad. I went there, started my aerospace degree took some classes, realized I didn't like thermodynamics or aerodynamics or all these other things that are important for aerospace engineering. And what I did actually like was autonomy and coding and designing algorithms. And I wanted to get more experience in that. So that's why I decided to pursue a PhD in computer science after I graduated. Um, and my research focuses on multi-agent motion planning. So how do we coordinate multiple agents in a dynamic environment? We've done a lot of research in underwater robotics, for example. Um, and then I'm also, also interested in um, the combination of learning and planning. So how can we, given sort of like a black box neural network, how can we provide some guarantees on safety um, when you kind of don't know what the inner workings of that model might be? Um, during the pandemic, I got a little bored, <laughs> as we all did, and I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to start uh, co-found a startup in the beauty tech space. Um, the startup is called Parfait. It's an AI-powered solution for custom wigs and hair extensions. Um, I was really excited to have an opportunity to use my skills to empower my own community and to tackle a problem that's very real to me, which is my hair. Um, and I was the um, chief operating officer. So my role was kind of everything from starting from the raw hair all the way to the product getting to the customer and everything in between. Um, and I was really interested in thinking about how we can use automation in that process in a, what is traditionally a very manual process. Um, I left that company in 2022 and um, to finish my PhD, but the company still exists and it actually sparked a big interest in supply chain, manufacturing, automation. Um, and after I graduate, I'm going to be working for this spring. Um, I'm going to be working for the Boston Consulting Group um, in their new tech design build team, focusing on heavy industries like manufacturing, construction, mining, stuff that's not very pretty um, <laughs> or flashy, but really could benefit from yeah. a lot of advances in AI and automation and um, companies that just don't have the in-house talent to, to build those solutions. So um, that's my career in other um, and other aspects of my life, like I said, is still a huge sci-fi nerd. I love reading. I love reading sci-fi and fantasy. Um, I ride a motorcycle. I like to dance and play soccer. And I love to travel. That's a little awesome. bit about me. <laughs> wow. Thank you for sharing. I mean, it sounds like your list of accomplishments is nothing less than a, a completely inspiring. Yeah, um, I love how you started off your journey knowing that aerospace engineering was something that you wanted to do. And I think that it sounds like you were inspired by a lot of the things around you to go into mm -hmm. that. But then you realize that um, I do love some aspects of this, but not all of it. Mm -hmm. And you were able to find what you truly believed in um, and work towards that. And I think that First of all, congratulations on yeah, working congratulations, towards a PhD definitely. at MIT. That is amazing in itself. And I think that it's just so inspiring to be with somebody who has this many accomplishments <laughs> as you do. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, Hermela, just to add on, I definitely think you have a very interdisciplinary background. And I really am, like Hermela said, inspired. I think even for myself, growing up in Cambridge, being surrounded by all this innovation, mm -hmm. you just naturally gravitate towards it, right? You want to immerse yourself in it. You want to get a feel for what is around you. Um, I definitely think when I was younger, 
I was super into like the tech space and like all the engineering and innovation going on. As I progressed older, I didn't necessarily stay in that realm, but I'm definitely still very fascinated by it. Um, and I think that just comes to show paralleling Marlise's experience, how as we grow and we look around and we try new things and fit into new groups and spaces, like our understanding of the world really evolves. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and I think that something that's also unique about the three of our experiences here in this room is that we're the three of us are women of color. Um, we are BIPOC women, and I know that in the fields that we want to pursue and in society at the moment, I mean, it's just harder for BIPOC women and women of color in order to gain and access to the spaces that others do mm -hmm. just because of the fact that we're underrepresented in many of these fields such as tech mm -hmm. um, and things of that nature. So before we dive in, we just wanted to ask you to share your personal experiences as a BIPOC woman in the tech industry and particularly with your work in AI. And we just wanted to, we were just wondering what have been some surprises and challenges with that journey. Yeah, um, I think I can start by saying that I love being a woman in color and STEM. I think for me, it is is the most significant thing I can do um, to advance my own community is being a role model and being present in those spaces. Um, and I think that is really rewarding in addition to just being fun and exciting. Um, I think you're right. There is a lot of um, dispar disparity, um, gender and racial and, and many things in between. Um, some things I think that have helped me get through the experience is, you know, I just had to get used to being the only woman or the only person of color mm -hmm. or both in the room. And that is an environment I'm very used to and I'm now very comfortable with. Um, I found close friends who are in the space who have my shared lived experience. That can be very, very helpful. Um, and I also realized that I actually have a lot of power to create the environments that I want to see. So, for example, in my own lab, I started out in my lab with there being two women um, out of you know, 12 or 14 graduate students. And now there are majority women in my lab. And I think a lot of that wow. is due to myself just advocating for a more diverse space. And so I think, you know, you don't have to just be content with the status quo. There are yeah. ways that you can influence your own environment. Um, that being said, there are definitely challenges. I think imposter syndrome and mm -hmm. confidence are big things. Um, just because I feel like I belong in a space doesn't mean others feel like I belong. Um, and sometimes I find myself questioning that as well or dealing with kind of the inevitable assumptions that people have, like maybe I'm in a meeting with a bunch of people and because I'm the only woman, people look to me to take notes because mm -hmm. that's a traditionally stereotypically female role, right? So just, you know, being confident, challenging those moments and, hey, yeah, I'm actually really good at taking notes, but I don't, you know, making it clear that it's because I want to and not because I feel obligated being yeah. the only woman or the only person of color. Um, I think the other thing I'll say is that the biggest thing that has helped me get through it is just a healthy dose of blissful ignorance. I'm sure there's a lot of microaggressions, macroaggressions, and probably discrimination that have happened to me in my career, but I kind of have a, you know, let it roll off of you. And the only thing you cannot control are other people's opinions and, yeah. and thoughts, and but you can control your response to them. And so I think there are some things that, you know, deserve acknowledgement, but most things don't even deserve acknowledgement. Most kind of aggressions don't. Um, and the best way that you can kind of ingratiate yourself in the community is by just being smart and talented and helpful and a person that people would want to work with regardless of your background. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Does that answer your question? No, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think you touched on so many amazing points there. And I think one that resonated with me the most is getting comfortable with being uncomfortable mm -hmm. or being placed in uncomfortable situations. I think even as young as we are, we've had our fair share, Hermela and I, of that already. And I feel it's just motivated us to keep going mm -hmm. and keep pushing. So I think with that mindset of just like translating those like negatives or those microaggressions, macroaggressions, whatever they may be, maybe into motivation. I think that's something in a headspace that like we've definitely been put in and has helped us propel ourselves and continue doing the work that we strive to do. So it's really amazing and inspiring to hear someone in maybe not a field that I'm particularly interested in pursuing, but knowing that that shared mm -hmm. experience of being a woman of color in spaces that were not historically 
been in um, or represented in is something that I love to see. And it's also kind of fun, just challenging yeah, the notion definitely. of what it means definitely. to be an engineer. Exactly. Like, I love being fashionable and, you know, caring about my hair and wearing makeup and, you know, the fact that you don't have to be nerdy and grungy and, you mm. know, only wear T-shirts and sneakers yeah. and stuff like that. Like, they're just little things that kind of are are fun to just, just sort of challenge the status quo. Yeah. No, I love <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, and I think that... Um, at least like in the past in society, the status quo has been such a big thing that I think a lot of people have been trying to live by. And I myself, I'm so happy to see so many people starting to break that status quo. So many women of color infiltrating these spaces that historically weren't made for them and pulling up a seat at the table, mm -hmm. uh, a table where they're not represented at represented at and where people didn't expect them to be represented mm -hmm. at and I think that that just speaks to the power of BIPOC women and really the knowledge the intellectuality that we possess and that we are ready to share with the world but I think that because we are underestimated it's hard for us to want to bring that light forward but I think that it's something that like the both of you have said so beautifully <laughs> we have to get used to breaking that barrier ourselves Definitely. and gaining that confidence. Yeah, and I think tapping into our two blocks um, project, we definitely think that this idea of not being the per being the demographic or being the person affected by the problem, but not being at the table when decisions mm -hmm. are made for the problem, I think that has very harmful effects, as we've seen with AI, with education, with so many different things. Definitely. So I definitely want to hear more from Marlise about what or how you would summarize the current landscape of AI mm -hmm. and its impact on different demographics. Um, is it benefiting all communities uh, communities equitably? How are we doing that and what should we continue to do? Yeah, yeah. I can kind of give like a general overview of like what I think the state of AI is. I think um, AI is, is, is ubiquitous at that po this mm -hmm. point. It's everywhere. It's in our phones, in our Amazon fulfillment centers. It's on our it's in our YouTube ads. It's our spam filters. It's it's everywhere. Um, and as someone who's a sci-fi nerd, I think this is actually really cool and exciting. It feels like a sci-fi novel come to life. But I do think that one of the biggest problems that we have is that there's a huge knowledge gap, meaning a lot of people don't understand what AI can do and most importantly, what it can't do. And if you think about other technologies that were um, disruptive, I don't know, an easy one's like the television, mm -hmm. right? Everyone pretty much understood what the capabilities of a television is, um, but many people don't understand what the full capabilities of their phones are, what the full capabilities of the cameras in their phones are, et cetera. Um, and so I think it is forcing us to think about our place as a species and like what there's a lot of things that AI is really good at, but there's a lot of things that humans are even better at. Mm -hmm. um, and so thinking about how AI can enable us as humans and not take away our freedom or utility is an important thing. Mm -hmm. That being said, AI is not enabling people equitably yeah. at the moment. Um, I think one one particular example is, um, you know, a lot of people have a lot of fear around job replacement when it comes to AI. And I think it it that particularly affects um, people of color in lower income communities way more because historically their jobs are the ones that are first to get replaced yeah, by new technologies. Definitely. And there's not enough being done, not necessarily in the technology development, but on the societal side of like, okay, how do we re-educate this population? How do we provide options for people? How do we make sure people understand, you know, what's coming and how that could potentially impact them? Um, and then there's also just kind of not socioeconomic, socioeconomic demographics that are being affected. Um, you know, a lot of careers are being affected way more than um, others, like artists and creatives. Currently, that's a big topic of like how AI is being affecting them and their their jobs. Um, so yeah, I think it there's a huge a huge inequity. Um, I think part of that is just um, you know the problems that. AI systems have chosen to address are just not necessarily the problems that are most impactful or impactful to marginalized communities. And instead, the problems that they choose to address end up negatively, yeah. often negatively impacting marginalized communities. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think the idea or what comes to mind when we bring up this like equity within AI is like almost 
I've been seeing AI sort of becoming like steamrolled over communities and just being used as band-aids for issues Mm -hmm. without actually addressing or creating proper and like adequate infrastructure to make sure these systems are working equitably for everyone. We just today in IFP earlier, we were watching a video about AI systems, specifically facial recognition software, mm-hmm. being implemented in various airports, specifically in the UAE, mm-hmm. and res- dis- like displacing the need for passports. So thinking about those systems, a lot of the time we're like, oh, that looks so great. That's so like sufficient, like efficient, perfect on paper. But in practice, we see these systems so negatively affecting mm-hmm historically marginalized communities, but more so these demographics are just continuously and are gaining and perpetuating, they're gaining the perpetuation of these negative softwares. Um, So I just see this like lens landscape and this lens of AI becoming this new band-aid for these issues, which I don't necessarily agree with. Um, And I was talking about this earlier, but finding and making sure that we can leverage AI as a tool and not sort of something to negatively affect or be of harm for these communities. I agree. AI is not a hammer for every nail. Exactly. And I think there's a lot, a lot of people say like, oh, are you worried about AI? Like the technology itself? I'm not actually worried about the technology itself. There's all Mm -hmm. these other things around the technology that people aren't thinking about. Laws and regulations, you know, personal social opinions about things. Um, And I think that's the aspect that's really far behind. I think the technology um, itself you know, has a lot of potential to do a lot of help. And, and I definitely hear what you're saying about Band-Aids, but I think there are um, places where it can be really beneficial, but it's the extra stuff mm-hmm. that happening around the AI that people don't think about or want to invest time yeah. and money in. Exactly. And I think that that comes to show that we're not worried, like you said, about the success. We're worried about the success of AI in terms of A, how we can use it responsibly and B, make sure that it's representing um, all people and all populations. I know that a lot of the time when AI algorithms are made, it goes through a lot of testing phases and groups. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we can see um, communities of color not accurately represented in these Mm -hmm. testing phases, meaning that when they're actually implemented, they are not able to serve these communities um, accurately or they're not just represented in what the algorithm completes. So with the example of the um, Dubai trying to implement mm-hmm. this facial recognition software, um, I think one thing that we were able to bring up in our discussion at IFP is that is this um, infrastructure able to be replicated in all countries or is it only those with the resources such as the United Arab Emirates in comparison to maybe countries in Asia, countries in Africa who don't have the infrastructure to implement this? Mm-hmm. And obviously there are general security concerns about mistaken identity and things of that nature. But I just think that the bigger... Um, conversation that needs to be had with implementation of these new like radical implementations of artificial intelligence in replace of our everyday actions is are we prioritizing convenience over um, safety and security and accurately making sure that equity is at the forefront of this conversation mm-hmm. or is it just a way to um put money in people's pockets and just make our lives a bit more convenient for those who are better served than others. So I think that's the bigger conversation here. Yeah. And just to add on to what you both mentioned, I think the backbone of all those points is education, Mm -hmm. not only by the people creating these softwares and these algorithms, but by the users and consumers of them. Right. I think we always talk about and we're going to get to Dr. Joy Bolomini in a second. But this idea of, again, who's at the table when these Mm -hmm. decisions are made, when these algorithms are made, are we equitably and adequately representing all people and demographics? And again, it sounds it's easier said than done. A lot of these things sound like it's super easy to gain and garner a lot of support and a lot of demographics in just systems to make sure we can equitably access everyone. But again, that's super hard to do. So I think coming back to this point of education is we need to make sure that people using AI, but also creating AI are both on either end educated on the topic, right? I think especially on the consumer side and like people using AI, even us students, schools are refraining from even touching base into AI. That's like blocked off. That's like a negative. And obviously there's some negative connotations with AI in schools, but 
I think that's stemming from a lack of education on the topic and a lack of like how to use it. A very mm -hmm. simple example is back in the day before I was, I think any of us were born um, <laughs> with math, right? When calculators were invented, they were seen as something to refrain from. But as right. we see proceeding through math classes, it's becoming a tool. Mm -hmm. How can we do the same thing with AI, right? I think we can leverage it as a tool in our education system. We can make it a resource. And I think it can actually help, like Marlies was saying, demographics that aren't often served or getting the, the pros from things like this. Um, so I think that's something to explore too. Yeah, no, I think that's a major point that you brought up, Jeanette, and you also brought up um, Dr. Joy Bolowini, and I think that we've mentioned her multiple times, but um, here at IFP, we're inspired by Dr. Joy Bolowini's work, um, and we watched her documentary, um, which is called Coded Bias, if you'd like to watch it a while back, um, and it's basically just dis discusses her work about how she's discovered bias that exists within facial recognition software and her work to... Um, to adjust that and so considering how AI is becoming more um, including included into our daily lives um, I think we've dropped the words algorithm and AI a lot during this podcast already but could you explain to our audience what algorithm bias is and how we could encounter it in our day-to-day -day activities yeah sure um, so I guess I can first give a summary of what I think AI is I think AI artificial intelligence my personal definition is a computer that's making a decision um, based on a set of inputs that's non-trivial. Um, and so doing some inference um, or some reasoning on a set of inputs and providing an output that you couldn't get just by looking at the inputs. Um, algorithm bias is when an AI algorithm or AI system um, returns different quality of solutions or different correctness of solutions on different types of inputs. Um, I think a very simple example of this is let's say you're trying to, to um, design a image detector that can recognize cats versus dogs in an image. Now you've given your algorithm 100,000 images of dogs and 20,000 images of cats. Mm -hmm. What do you think it's going to be better at recognizing? Dogs. And mm -hmm. the algorithm is now biased towards dogs. Um, and that's just a very simple you know, toy example, but you can imagine how that scales up um, a, a lot. Um, I think another way you can think about it is AI is an algorithm that, that operates on inputs and outputs and whatever um, computation is happening in between. Those are really just what the algorithmic designer kind of told told the algorithm, the parameters the algorithm is operating on, it really only has what you give it. And so um, I think a lot of the bias is really coming from the people, not intentionally or not, who are designing the algorithms. What inputs are they giving the algorithm? Um, what rules are they encoding? What assumptions are they making? And whether or not those are clear to the end user or not. I think it's totally fine to have a biased algorithm if you really care about the algorithm being really good at, at, at doing something. Maybe you only care about your algorithm just determining dogs and that way then it's fine if it's not very good at cats. Um, but I think in a world in a situation where you care about ubiquitously accurate results, then it's important to have ubiquitously consistent and accurate data. Um, and that's something that's very hard. Um, in terms of where we encounter algorithmic bias in our everyday lives, right? Um, I think my the one I always cite is um, virtual backgrounds mm -hmm. in Zoom or, or Zoom or whatever video calls. Um, whenever I have my hair natural and like a little fro state, it always looks terrible when I have background blur on because those algorithms for background blurring and recognizing what the limits of a human head are, right, are not trained on people with afros and so it often like cuts off all my hair and makes it this really awkward like round shape that is terrible <laughs> so i yeah. never use the background blur features yeah. um and that's just like something random um that happens regularly but you can probably imagine little things like that um that you probably have turned off or you've said no because mm -hmm. you don't like how it makes you feel or mm -hmm. how it makes you look um and that's probably algorithm bias coming into play yeah i think to your last point, like those little things have big impacts mm -hmm. and big changes. And I think even like thinking back on individuals that I've talked to and circumstances I've encountered, that's definitely something that I notice is like those small, very like implicit encounters with AI sort of have these like inverse effects of being negative and like wanting us to back away and shy away from even using these systems. So I think to my last point about education, I think that's something is 
making sure we know how these things work, but also how we can make them work for us, right? Mm-hmm. I think going back to Marlise's previous point earlier on in this episode, she brought up this idea of who is using these platforms, but also when they're being used and how they're being used. So I think with AI and with these new technologies, we see this like effect of people automatically hitting the ground running and using these and leveraging them as tools and just powerful resources. But then mm-hmm. ba- demographics who have this like one-off encounter that's not so positive sort of shy away. Like, you know, I'm not even going to turn on my video, right? So mm-hmm. those like minuscule things have this really big impact. And I think that's something that is not talked about enough. Yeah, and kind of building on top of that, I think something that's important to recognize when we're talking about, oh, who's building this algorithm versus who is it serving is um, the idea of perspective. Mm -hmm. So I think that the perspective of those who are creating the algorithm is um, looking a certain way and it's not acknowledging people on the sidelines. And these people on the sidelines are are normally marginalized communities of color, um, low-income communities who unfortunately they cannot create this algorithm to their perspective and because this algorithm is created with a perspective that doesn't include them they're not able to be accurately served so i think that like you said it manifests in a lot of little ways in our day-to-day activities and some people may not recognize that but i think that even the tiniest things even i one time i remember putting on my background blur and it just looked so terrible Mm -hmm. that i think i just turned my camera (laughs) off at that point so it's just the smallest thing that can um, really have a big impact. And like Jeanette said, those tiny things add up. Mm -hmm. And I think now we're reaching an age where we're starting to recognize how our everyday day-to-day activities are being impacted by AI that's biased. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's amazing that that conversation is being brought to the world stage. And I'm so happy that it is because I really do think that it's time that we discuss how algorithmic bias has been so engraved in our society and the um, just the tech world and how we can work towards bettering that. Yeah, I also think that, um, you know, scientists are brilliant, uh, but we, we do not always do the best job at communicating our innovations or thinking about how to communicate our innovations. And I think from my perspective, AI has been around for, you know, since the 1980s. It's it's an old topic, but from, you know, the current general public's perspective, AI is new. AI is hot. AI is, you know, mm-hmm. in vogue. And a lot of that is because of ChatGPT, mm-hmm. right? And I think some things that ChatGPT did well or OpenAI did well was just putting out there a very powerful tool just to get people to use it, just to get people talking about it. And I think even though ChatGPT does not work well on everyone, even though ChatGPT has algorithm bias, it's good that people are you know, mm-hmm. having their hands in it and, and understa- starting to understand how it works. But I think what they didn't factor in is that people have such vast experiences um, with technology and technological innovations and vast reactions. And I think, unfortunately, not even related to AI, but in a lot of other types of technologies, marginalized communities have been burned before. And so they're Mm -hmm. very wary. And I think when you introduce a new technology to the world, you have to consider not only how the average person would think, but how certain communities are going to receive it. Um, I'm thinking about the Tuskegee experiments, for example, where, you know, a lot of people just have this, you know, adversion, very rightly so. Um, And they need to be spoken to very differently than someone who, um, you know, doesn't have that historical context. Um, And unfortunately, scientists are just not that great (laughs) communication. Um, I think you know, another aspect of education is when we educate our engineers who are going to design these algorithms, it's not about it's not only about the technology. It's about how the technology is going to be received in the world, how technology is going to impact the world and how you need to communicate your technology to the outside world. Mm-hmm. And not only is that not done well um, today, but it's not taught. You know, engineers don't know how to do that um, when leaving university. And so I think that's a major failing um, in, in those education systems. Definitely. And I think to that, 
you mentioned this previously, but a lot of these like biases are sometimes involuntary, right? I don't totally. think a lot of people or even people making these algorithms are vividly sitting there and are like, how can we discriminate? How can we make sure we're not adequately representing communities? I think that is the beauty so-called of this bias is it is just our human nature, right? It's our nurture right. and our nature and what we're exposed to as humans. Even as a person of color, I don't think I can sit here and talk about AI and how it adequately and not so well treats people, right? Mm -hmm. Of all types and all demographics, because that's my lived experience and my lived experience is so different from your lived experience, so different from yours. Um, right. So I do think it takes a team and it takes a harnessing power to make sure that we're not playing whack-a-mole with AI systems, but more so making sure we address them on the first basis, right? Um, and I think to that, there's been so many harms of AI that appear to be greater than those of previous technologies. Um, we've seen instances of faulty facial recognition software leading to wrongful arrest and biased hiring algorithms that prefer men over women. These issues create distrust, particularly among the most vulnerable communities, which often negatively affected our individuals and demographics. So our concern is that the companies are more interested in profits than the harm being caused. So what are your thoughts, Marlies, on this and how can these issues be effectively addressed? Yeah, yeah. I think um, the most obvious solution in my mind to this problem is a more diverse set of people who are developing these algorithms. There's been studies done, um, there's a study done, um, and I'm forgetting the source, but on college admissions, where they took um, you know, a set of application reviewers had them you know go through the applications looked at the resulting diversity of the accepted students they then increased the diversity of the people reviewing applications um and they got such a dramatic increase in the diversity of the applicants same pool of applicants all of them relatively qualified people are just drawn to what they know and are more comfortable with what they know. They're more comfortable with people who have the same experience as them. And so consciously or subconsciously, um, you're going to be drawn to the familiar. And so the one of the only ways you can prevent um, you know, that from becoming a negative impact on your technology is by making sure the people who are developing it are a diverse enough set of people that you know all their familiars can, can match and create a, a broader impact in the world. Um, I think a more challenging and longer drawn out solution to this problem, but I think it's very necessary, is um, regulation and political action. I think mm -hmm. this is something that people aren't thinking about enough. I think this is something a field young people aren't going into enough because I get it. It's not flashy. It doesn't pay as much as you know going to be a software developer for Google, um, but it's so, so needed because... Um, like I mentioned, the technology itself isn't good or bad, harmful or unharmful. It's how we use the technology, how people are using the technology, how companies are needing technology. And I think that companies need to be held accountable. Um, and unfortunately, you know, our legal system and our, our government just doesn't move as fast. Yeah. And so I think thinking about how can we slow down, roll back and wait for some of these things to catch up or, you know, push more people into thinking about okay, now that we have this technology, it's out in the world, like what are the regulations that need to be put on companies? Um, you know, I think specifically around data usage, that's a big one, right? Like when can companies use your data? What do they have to tell you about how they're using their data? Um, maybe they're, for some things, I think that an excellent example is the, the passport, um, eliminating passports. Maybe a fully AI solution is not, is not the solution. Maybe you can have AI enable, um, you know, airport security without having it completely replace humans, or you have humans in the loop in another way, maybe it makes their job easier or faster, they can process more people, but there's still checks and balances, so to speak. Um, and I think those checks and balances will only be put in place when they are forced to be put in place on companies. Because as you mentioned, money talks, <laughs> right? People care the most about their profitability, care the most about money. Um, and so like, how can we make it financially how can you make it financially incentivizing for companies to actually do these types of things? Um, I think a big one is, you know, consumers have more power than we think. Mm -hmm. And um, I think a great example of this is um, during our startup, one of the things we noticed was Gen Z, you all, really cares about sustainability yeah. and really will prefer a product products of two equal value, prefer a product that has sustainable packaging to a product that doesn't. And mm -hmm. so um, 
that is a group of people, a group of consumers demanding a certain, um, demanding certain things from the companies they buy from. And so I think in addition to companies making informed decisions about how they use AI, consumers also, we we have the power to make informed decisions. We have the power to choose most of the time, um, you know, based on what we know about how the company is using data, how the company is going about things, we have the power to choose who we support, what we support, what we believe in. I mean, you guys all cancel people all the time. It's remarkable. <laughs> you guys should start canceling companies. I mean, for real. <laughs> oh, trust me, I think been happening. <laughs> I think that um, everything that you just mentioned right now about how companies are viewing um, the idea of making sure their products are, are diverse over their products ties back to a conversation that we consistently have here at Two Blocks um, that I think we bring up in probably every, every single episode. podcast episode, <laughs> but it's the idea of CSR versus CSV. Um, and just a refresher, CSR is corporate social responsibility. Mm -hmm. And the flip side of that is creating shared values. So mm -hmm. I think that if we were to tie this back to a conversation on AI, mm -hmm. corporate social responsibility um, yeah, corporate social responsibility is the idea of just putting something out there for the financial aspect of it. So I think that, like we've mentioned, a lot of the AI that's put out there does not have um, diverse populations in mind. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's and like we said, it's not their intention to do that. Mm -hmm. However, the way that they are able to produce and send out this AI is helping them gain a lot of money. And mm -hmm. just like you said, money talks. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really give them much of an incentive to adjust their artificial intelligence if it's already giving them the, the results that they want. Right, right. But on the other hand, we have CSV or creating shared value. And I think that's where we want to see diversity come mm -hmm. into play, especially with AI, um, because the whole idea of CSV is making sure that the work that you're doing is also adding to a community rather than taking away from it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we create artificial intelligence without diversity in mind, it's taking away from marginalized communities mm -hmm. rather than giving back to them and giving them more value. So I think that making sure that, like you said, these companies Maybe not canceling them, but just <laughs> I, we need to find a way to make sure that they're able to see how much diversity can not only impact um, by increasing the amount of people who use their work, they will gain a financial incentive, but they will also just make communities and the whole world better. And that's really what we want them to see. Yeah. And I think that comes to mind, this idea of like implementing DEI to be a mm -hmm. pillar of AI systems and algorithms. I definitely think there's so much room for us to make this a reality, right? I think there's so much tech out there besides AI that has lacked that, right? I think we're just now talking once AI has really come into the mix and like gained popularity and gained momentum recently that we're taking a step back as a society and talking about how these technologies are not doing what they should be, right? Um, so I think this up and rising, and it's not so up and rising, but I think to the general public it is, understanding that like this idea of DEI can be a fundamental aspect of AI, right? Um, just a quick experience and anecdote on my end. I, in the fall, was a panelist at the Kendall Square Association's 15th annual like celebration and meeting. And I was one of the panelists. All the panelists were men and <laughs> were much older than me and were very big luminaries within AI. Some of them worked at Microsoft, others worked at Meta, Google just to name a few. And being the only female, very young <laughs> compared to the rest of the panel, I was talking about AI from this lens of like DEI, right? Mm -hmm. Talking about it from like equity, inclusion, all these things that we're touching base on this podcast today. I was sitting there and I almost felt like a broken record because you have all these people sitting there talking, oh, like algorithms, this, this, that. Yeah, we're just like making more money. I was like, whoa, let's take a step back. <laughs> and look around the room. Mm. I don't think the people sitting up here on the panel are reflective of who's in the audience. And those are the ultimate consumers, right? A very small population of the consumers of AI. How can we make sure that we're like connecting the dots, right? I think this idea of like working in silos and perpetuating silos is coming to show with AI systems. We see so many people doing things and wanting to be the first to get to something done that they're not actually slowing down and saying, 
what are we not doing? Who are we missing from the table? Who are we missing from the conversation? So I think that experience in itself was super eye-opening to look at things from someone who's not so tech savvy and not so in that realm, but still really intrigued and, and, and interested in it, understanding that like I'm using these systems and they're not working for me. So I can actually be an advocate for that. Um, and you brought up this idea of like AI and governance. And that's something that I've been doing a lot of personal research. And I know at the national level, even at the local level, there's been a lot of conversation about this like so-called AI bill of rights mm-hmm. um, and just usage of ethical AI and what that looks like. So I think there's so much coming and that conversation is starting to brew up, which is really interesting and inspiring. But I think there's still a lot to be done. And I think from a local perspective, we in Cambridge, with Kendall Square being the most innovative square mile on the planet, have a lot to do. And I think we can participate with a very big upper hand right. in this conversation regarding AI. So, yeah, definitely. And um, I think that an idea that you brought up, Janet, was the AI Bill of Rights, which we do here at IFP have a lot of conversations about. And I think that you were speaking a lot to the idea of making sure that we have rules and regulations on our AI usage. So an example of that that we know of is that recently at IFP, we read an article and it was written by Reshma Sanjani. And she's the founder of Girls Who Code, which is an amazing organization Mm -hmm. to help um, increase access for um, women and have them young girls introduce the coding and also moms first. Um, the title of this article was "We Don't Have to Choose Between Ethical AI and Innovative AI," and um, her company recently developed an AI tool that helps mothers access. Um, or uh, paid family leave. And I think, first of all, that's amazing work. And towards the end of the article, she makes a really important statement that we just wanted to bring up. And she says that if we're going to build trust in AI among people who have never used these tools before, then the people these tools are built to support must be at the table, helping design AI solutions from the start. In our case, that means centering the perspectives of moms, specifically single moms, moms of color, and moms who are hourly workers. And so she seems to be suggesting a different approach to AI development, which is also a lot of the conversation that we've been having today. Um, And we were just wondering, is the AI community interested in bringing end users to the table to help develop AI with this greater emphasis on equity and inclusion? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I absolutely answer your question. I think most developers and researchers want to build things that are useful to people that are going to make an impact. Um, And the only way to do that is to loop in the people who are actually going to use it. I think the bigger, well, uh, two two bigger problems, and I'm I'm mostly coming from a research lens as that's like where my, that's my space that I'm currently in. But a lot of research, researchers I've seen often ask the question, can I and not should I? So, you know, a lot of people are really interested in these very hard technical problems that either don't actually have a lot of impact in the real world or aren't going to, you know, people aren't going to care about it or are going to have a negative impact because they aren't thinking about, you know, the implications of the work. And so I think there's a big paradigm shift needed in the research community um, where we're pioneering a lot of these technologies, which is just because we can doesn't mean we should and we don't have to invest in every single avenue that seems interesting if it's not actually going to be net beneficial to humanity. Um, I also think on the commercial side, another issue, and this is something that I've experienced personally, is a lot of times um, investors don't hesitate to fund companies or initiatives that are specifically designing for marginalized communities. We talked about earlier, money talks, profitability really matters. And so one of the things we experienced with Parfait, for example, was we were a care company that was specifically focused on black women. There are 20 million black women in the US compared to 160 million women in total. So I'm an investor. I get a company that is um, designing a product for all women versus a company that's designing a product for black women. Mm which has more users, which can make me more money, obviously the company that's going to design for for all women. And so I think um, there's also, I've been seeing this trend shift a little bit, um, whereas there's more companies like Moms First that are getting funding that are specifically targeting specific communities. Um, But it's a slow shift still. I think in the venture capitalist world, which is where a lot of these companies start um, in in the AI space, right? I think investors really value um, 
like the total market size, like how how much, how many users can you get? How much can this tool be used? Versus like, I'm just going to create a really, really good solution for this one community. It's not going to make, like we knew Parfait is not going to be a Google because, you know, it's not serving the same purpose. It's not addressing the same problems. But I think it's important to kind of spread the wealth and sh- and spread the, the money. <laughs> um, and I also believe that if you solve problems for the marginalized community, you actually end up solving problems for everyone. Yeah. Um, and I think that is not a necessarily universally held belief, but I think it is really true. Solving for the margins is the hardest are the hardest problems. So if you can solve problems for the margins, you've basically built in solve problems for (laughs) (laughs) for the the larger community. Right, right. Um, You know, if you can solve the problem of identifying someone's skin tone who has a really dark skin in a dark room, well, obviously it's going to be easier to identify a person with light skin tone in a dark room. So I think there's just um, a lot of ways where we could think about how a particularly an algorithm or system particularly designed for a marginalized community could translate to a larger community, which could help, you know, more companies, more investors kind of put time and effort into these initiatives. Um, And I love to see companies like Moms First because, um, you know, it gives me a lot of hope that there is a trend in this, you know, very competitive um, VC world um, that, you know, we're moving in the right direction, slowly and surely. <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. And I think this idea of like quality versus quantity comes up. Mm-hmm. I touched on this earlier, but I feel like there's so much and there's like this metaphorical race to be the first to do mm-hmm. something that I think that is the end goal and the ultimate like vision of a lot of these, like you mentioned, like venture capital, like startups and just like small initiatives at first that we sort of get this like skewed mentality about like why they're actually there and what's the purpose behind them. So I definitely think right Right now with such we mentioned like moms first and even girls who code like these initiatives in these companies are doing the work that a lot of these big monster corporations aren't doing so i do think they are filling in the gaps of the work that these co- companies and like the googles of the world aren't doing but then you see google coming out with something very similar um so i do think there's sort of this like race of like who can do this who can be the first and like who can get it done in time. Um, But I think that perception of time is again, very skewed. I do think that with these initiatives, there isn't enough recognition of them Mm -hmm. in these platforms, right? I think a lot of the time we like to see OpenAI, right? They just sort of like came out of the water last winter um, to the general public. And everyone was like, oh my goodness, what is this? I remember the first time that I actually like found out about ChatGPT and OpenAI specifically was actually in my English class. My teacher gave us the whole period to explore the platform. He was like, free reign, like go look into this. He really wanted to be there and guide us through the process. He's really into tech himself. But I think that itself and that one-off instance of being able to explore, ask questions and immerse myself in like what this new technology is, Mm -hmm. I think that's a very beneficial thing and something that's lacking when it comes to education and when it comes to other settings within our society. Um, So I think that's just a quick touch on this like initiatives and projects that a lot of people are working on so right and i think that that's such a great experience that you had like having your first exposure to the world of ai being one where you were able to learn about it and learn about what it's able to do for you and i think that um a lot of big corporations at the moment view or measure success or the fruits of their labor as Um, a quantitative measurement of money. Um, But if we really want to get down to it, I think that we should be measuring success in the way that it's able to impact the lives of individuals um, and the communities around us. So I think that, for example, I can speak from my personal experience, but I remember that Girls Who Code had an initiative in my elementary school where there was this one day every year we'd spend in the computer lab just doing a bunch of coding activities. And I know a lot of girls for who from there were really interested in tech and the tech world and who even I think right now in high school are taking a lot of our IT classes, our computer science classes, and a lot of that stemmed from the earlier exposure they had to it because of initiatives such as these. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's time 
everybody, not only these people who are doing such amazing work, but also these big corporations are able to shed light on the issues that our marginalized communities are facing, mm-hmm. find solutions to solve them in order to make them more widespread. And like we said, make sure that they gain the recognition that they deserve, because I think they're doing such amazing work. And we just want to make sure that these initiatives are at the focal point of the conversation we want to have and are essentially leading by example to those who should follow them. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's, again, just creating shared value. I think this is what Mm -hmm. a lot of this is about, is just being able to connect communities, connect demographics, and connect corporations to the people, right? Right. I think we sort of talk about them in very, like, one-off instances. Okay, corporations are doing their thing. The people are doing their thing. Okay, how can we connect them? How can we mend the gap? And I think that is where a lot of the unanswered and unresolved issues Mm -hmm are right i think just connecting the consumer with the creator and vice versa will help address a lot of these things i think on that note marlise we wanted to ask are there specific initiatives or project um projects we mentioned coded bias earlier but others that you've come across that are making strides in addressing these disparities in ai um and how they impact different communities yeah i think um i mean this is a very hard problem (laughs) um but i do think it's a very active area of research um um, I think the the whole um, concept of algorithm bias, the concept of data privacy and security. So, for example, one one research group at MIT and CCL is called the Decentralized Information Group, and they are specifically focused on how can we make data usage unbiased and privacy per, like privacy ensuring, so that you can have ac- you own your own data, and whatever company is using it, it's all privatized. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one important aspect of this kind of equity conversation. Um, there's also the AI Equity Initiative and the Bill and Linda Gates Foundation, and they do a lot of education mm-hmm. outreach specifically. So how can we get, you know, like you were mentioning, some schools don't want to talk about AI, and they, how can we get schools all over the world, including in developing countries, to start t- including AI in their curriculums and, and getting access to um, people who are learning, um, just so that they understand that this is it's not going away. It's it's a thing. Um, the other thing, this is kind of related to what you were saying too about um, you know responsibility in research, responsibility of of companies or designers, developers. I have been noticing um, a lot more in a lot more conferences, journals, grants for researchers requiring ethical statements um, or impact statements or equity statements, um, either you know as appendices to the actual research or as appendices to the proposal of research. Mm-hmm. And while, you know, I have to admit these are not always great and they're not always, you know, the equity statements I would want to see, <laughs> mm-hmm. it does start to force some of these people to just at least think about mm-hmm. it. Um, and I think that's a great way we can start to increase the number of people who are addressing the problem is just by requiring simple things like I need you to, to see that you've at least thought about it. Um, and yeah, I, I, even though that's a small step, I think it's very important. Yeah. Um, I think that's like a great thing. And I actually didn't know that before, but it's also this idea of like performative action. Mm-hmm. Like I think mm-hmm. a lot of these people, as much as it is great to get them thinking about it, which is the first step, honestly, yeah. a lot of the time it's going to start becoming like this transactional experience of just like checking the box. Okay, right. what's ethical? What's equitable? Let's just get that done and we're done. Um, so obviously there's a lot of ins and outs with that. And it just depends on like the type of research and who is behind it um but i would love to see people shying away from that and actually making that a pillar or a fundamental of totally. their work um but it's great to see that like there is a step being made towards that yeah um and again it just hits different people and hits different demographics differently yeah and i hope that all of these initiatives that you mentioned all of the ones that exist out there are able to truly grow and make their uh, presence known and heard and I hope that that's just one of the first steps that we could take to shedding awareness on disparities AI and if we get the community involved in the world to hear these problems I just hope that that could help us move towards a future where AI is used responsibly and it's used for the good of the community mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think that with this idea of looking forward and trying to change the future as it comes at us. We want to ask you, looking forward, um, what steps or strategies do you think are essential for ensuring that future developments in AI prioritize fairness, accountability, and inclusivity? 
Yeah, um, I think the biggest one, I mentioned this before, is prioritizing diverse teams. Mm -hmm. Having the teams of people who are developing these technologies um, be diverse. Does this mean that companies and institutions have to focus on hiring and focus on culture to actually attract these people? Yes, but you know, so be it. I think that the payoff is so immense um, from having diverse teams and diverse talent. Um, and to me, it kind of seems like low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. I, I know a lot of companies say like, oh, there's the pipeline problem or like, I don't know where to find. We're here. We're there. We're ready to be a part of it. Um, but I do think diversity begets diversity. And so you have to kind of make an initial effort. And once you get that momentum going, like more and more people will want to become a part of that company or culture. Um, but yeah, I think creating a diverse set of teams is really important. I also want to highlight the importance of mentorship. So mm-hmm. I, I firmly believe in mentorship and outreach. And I think that it is the responsibility of every successful person to give back. And I think that if in my life I was able to inspire one person, um, one marginalized person to go into STEM, like that, like game over, I'm done. Like that is all I've mm-hmm. ever wanted. And I hopefully have inspired more than one person <laughs> so far. Um, but I think that like that is a huge way of just improve, increasing the number of people and the types of people who even want to pursue STEM is really important. Um, I think the other aspect is um, allyship. Mm-hmm. I think a lot a, a big challenge I didn't mention before when I talked about being a woman in STEM is a lot of times um, either as a person of color, as a woman or both, you are the one getting asked to address these problems. You are the one getting asked to solve the problems. You're the one getting asked to, you know, start the diversity initiatives at your company, to speak on the panels, to mm-hmm. mentor new, you know, to mentor w- new women coming, all of these things, which just takes away from the work that you actually want to do. And so I think more people need to, more people need to be a part of this discussion, specifically people who aren't part of marginalized communities, because there's more of them. (laughs) And, um, you know, people tend to, people tend to kind of believe in what they know. And I think you can reach a much broader community if you have um, voices from that community specifically, just like you're talking about now, right? You have voices from your community trying to be involved, but also you need voices from non-marginalized communities to speak to non-marginalized communities about marginalized communities because Mm -hmm. that's, you know, meet people where they are. Um, And I think that's something people often forget. And I think it's a big challenge in the STEM world, but also like, you know, more, um, more specifically in the AI world as well. It's just like, um, it's really hard to both be developing the technology and pushing forward the diversity and equity if it all falls on you, the mm-hmm. person of, of color, or you, the woman, right? Um, yeah, so I think that's, that's one of the important things to think about. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And I think I am a very firm believer as well about this power and this ideal of mentorship. I think that is something that needs to be emphasized way more in tech spaces and other spaces in general. It's this idea of like windows and mirrors, right? Mm -hmm. If you see reflections of yourself and if you see people Mm -hmm. who look like you, I think that makes you eager to walk through the door and take those opportunities and be able to partake in spaces such as tech and AI. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think on that note, like I definitely, definitely resonate with that and I echo that totally like in to the viewers and listeners be a mentor right no matter who you are no matter where you stand within your community big or small you can be a mentor and you can be someone that children youth even young adults and anyone for that fact can look up to um so I think that's again bridging that gap and connecting with one another that is really the key recipe and the key ingredient for making these systems and these new innovations successful yeah and I think that kind of building on top of that I feel like the way that we phrased AI today in our conversation is as if it's this huge global problem that's going to take years to solve but um really it starts the change starts with the smallest of actions. Mm -hmm. So like um, the two of you have said, the ideas of mentorship, allyship, this can help encourage more women of color, more communities of color, more low-income communities into these um, marginalized um, fields. And I think that this is just the first step, one of many that could be taken to make sure that we are able to 
create an industry that is diverse and representative of the people. So I think just echoing what Jeanette was able to say, um, even though your action may seem minuscule in comparison to the um, size of this issue and how many people you think is needed to encompass it, um, your smallest of actions can have the um, biggest of impact. And that's really what we, w- what we want to get across from today. Yeah. yeah, I feel like AI, this this problem of AI inequity is a people problem. It's yeah. not a technology mm-hmm. problem. Exactly. And um, yeah, so I think we need to address it like a people problem. Exactly. Um, and I'm a big in mentorship. I could speak for hours on mentorship and different clients. But one other thing I wanted to say and, and highlight is I want to encourage women of color, people of color, whatever, um, women to mentor like non-people of color or non-women mm-hmm. because I think... I thought I think about this for myself and I think I could do a better job of this. I think about yes it's important to see people who look like you in in positions of power in positions of success. It's also important to see people who don't look like you because how can you have respect? How can you have understanding, empathy if you never get exposed? And so in the in a recent past, I mentored an all-girls high school robotics team. I absolutely love them. They're incredible. And I feel really proud of what I've gotten to do. But a little part of my brain was like, hmm, maybe I should have gone and mentored a robotics team at a co-ed school where it's majority boys who really don't have the role models of women of color or women to even know how they should be, you know, um, interacting in these more diverse spaces, mm-hmm. to even know that this is something that they should normalize in their mind that they're going to see women in these positions. Um, And so I think that is just something I've thought about personally. Um, But yeah, all going back to the fact this is a people problem. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. And I think with that note, we're going to wrap up this episode. But lastly, I just wanted to end is this idea of like passing the baton, right? I think we all have something to give, not in addressing the problem, but finding the solutions for them. I think we emphasize so much, okay, this is a problem, this is a problem, this is a problem, but don't talk enough about how we can solve them, right? How I can be a piece in a puzzle, Mm -hmm. piece in the puzzle to solve the issue and solve the overall problem at hand. Um, So I think with that, does anyone else have any last closing remarks or anything they want to say? You guys are awesome. Keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I feel like, you know, like I said, the biggest thing that I feel like I can contribute is just by being here and being in the spaces Mm -hmm. and being in in the conversations. And I think it's easier than you think to be in those communities. And you guys, I think, prove that just by having a podcast. It's like, thank you. And we just like to thank you. Thank you. Um, We just want to echo thank you so much for being here and taking the time out of your day to be here with us. Um, We are so happy to have had this conversation with you. And I think we can speak on behalf of everybody who's listening (laughs) that we've learned so much from what you've had to say. So with that, I think that marks the end of our episode today. And we'll see everybody in the next Next one. Thank you. Thank you, Marlies.